For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, imagine learning to read and write after more than 50 years of keeping your illiteracy a secret. Catch up with all-around entertainer Ben Vereen. I'll talk with author Elizabeth Evans about her new novel, As Good As Dead. And tomorrow is National Pie Day. How are you observing? Stay tuned for Arizona Spotlight. The Department of Education reports that more than 30 million adults in the U.S. struggle with basic literacy skills. Many of them also bear the burden of keeping that fact a secret from family and friends. Next, Sandra Westall meets a local man who spent decades hiding before turning his life around. 58-year-old Uwe Kylitz proudly points at one of the many education certificates that hangs on a wall in his tiny office. This one right here. This is my very first one. Just a few years ago, this wall was empty because he didn't know how to read or write. Since when I went through high school and, and even through, uh, grammar, through grammar school, I was trying to be invisible. I didn't want to you know, have me call names or anything. Hey, this guy can't read. He's stupid. He shouldn't be in here. You know? And I've had that happen you know, with teachers, too, and students. And that's what changed me. I just said, no more. I'm not going to do this anymore. Uvi grew up in New Jersey with his German parents. They were reading English, but not that good. It was mostly just German. They kept asking me to read something, see if you're going to get any better. Even though he graduated high school, his literacy skills never really improved. You just can't teach a person to pick up a book that he's never, that he can't read. I just could not do it. Like Uvi, many adults in Arizona struggle with basic literacy skills, like reading a menu or their utility bills. Betty Stauffer is executive director of Literacy Connects, a Tucson nonprofit that provides basic services for the large portion of the population that can't read or write. Unfortunately, adult literacy is a major problem uh, here in the United States, uh, and particularly here in Arizona and Pima County. We have adults who come through our doors all the time who are high school graduates, but they can barely read. So education level doesn't necessarily equate to literacy level. One of our adult learners has said, and he, he'll say this to anybody he talks to, you know people who can't read. You just don't know they can't read because they hide it so well. It was hard keeping that secret. When they tell you to fill something out and you can't do it, I had to wait until I got home so my parents can help me with it. Uvi kept his lack of literacy from co-workers at a Tucson machine shop where he did finishing work for many years. He managed to keep it a secret from friends for more than three decades. But things changed when he got laid off from his dishwashing job at the airport about four years ago. For your job applications, when you had to fill out your name, your address, and you had to put down how many people you knew, and you know, and I couldn't read half of the stuff that was on there. I used to have copies of, of applications that I take with me, and I would kind of, oh, that's the same as this. Okay, so I can write this in there. And that's when I said, no, no more couldn't do it anymore. And plus, my parents passed away. I'd, I'd, I needed to learn how to read. That's when he decided it was time to get help. I was really nervous when I walked through there the first time. You know, walking through those doors, and I thought, okay, let's see what happens. 
Edie Lance Leopard at Literacy Connects teaches basic literacy skills to many adults in Pima County. Most of her students are native English speakers. I'm always in awe of the people who come to us and what they've done in their lives and what they've had to do in their lives. And in our society, there's, there's not a stigma to, oh, I, I can't draw or, oh, I can't, I'm not a math person. There's not a stigma to that. There is a stigma to, what do you mean you can't read? She met Uvi when he started the program five years ago. It was a really small group. I think we started with five or seven students, and he was very, very quiet. And then the further the class went, the more he participated. And then he was a very active participant in sharing his comments and his reflections and his connections and asking questions and got really engaged in the book. And I could definitely see that he was on his way to becoming a reader, and that book changed everything for him. The classmates on Tuesday began after breakfast. The subject was the meaning of life. It was tiring for me to explain. Tuesdays with Maury. This book represents that this is how I started. Since, you know, when I turned 53, I never read a book. It, it just changed my world completely. Completely changed me. I've been doing different things for different people. Things like getting other students as engaged in reading as he is. There was another student here that Uva was concerned wasn't reading enough. And he said, I'm going to make you read more. I'm going to start a book club and you're going to be in it. We're going to start over. We're going to start over? Okay, good, good, good. This little group of ours has been, we're here, we're here, we're here every Monday. Adult education, especially adult literacy, is not a fast process. This is not something that you're going to see substantial change in literacy levels in a year. Depending on their background and what they've been through and what they're carrying with them and what they're bringing, it's going to be two years, four years, five years. I think we have a lot of adults who have been hiding, have been living invisible lives and voiceless lives and have so much that they can offer us and so much they can do for our community and our society but they need that chance and they need uh, a safe place and people that understand them. For Uvi, knowing how to read has become such an important part of life that he recently started volunteering as a tutor for a group of ESL students. This is H-E, right? Okay. He, all, okay, he always hasn't sunk it in yet that I'm actually doing this. I'm actually being a tutor. I've been catching up to things that I always wanted to do, but I couldn't do them, you know? like try to learn to play my uh, guitar or read a lot of books that I never could do. You know, I'm reading a lot of books and it's like opening doors and wow, you know, I just want more of this. So far, he only knows how to play a few chords, he says with a big smile. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Sandra Westall. Master classes at the University of Arizona are a chance for veteran artists and educators to share a measure of their experience with the next generation. Last week, Christopher Conover talked with visiting master class instructor Ben Vereen and found him in a reflective mood 
about a career full of achievements. We got magic to do just for you. We got miracle plays to play. Since 1965, Ben Vereen has been doing just that, performing magic on the stage and screen. He won a Tony for that role, leading player in Pippin in 1973. He was in Jesus Christ Superstar, Chicago, I'm Not Rappaport, Wicked. He toured with Sammy Davis Jr., starred in the TV production Roots, and had a lead role in the cop show Ten Speed and Brown Shoe. He appeared on numerous small screen comedies, dramas, and variety shows. He's been on the silver screen more than a dozen times, and recently Vereen was at the University of Arizona to teach a master dance class. You have excellence here. I first came here some years ago because my, my uh, principal retired here, uh, Rachel Yoakum, and she drafted me. And you were kind enough to give me my honorary degree here. And so this is my home. So this is a place I get an opportunity to give back to the young people that which I have learned in my journey to help them on their way. The opportunity for students to work with a veteran like Ben Vereen is special, but the inspiration passes not just from master to students. I get the freshness. I get to see the growth, and I get to see the handoff, and that's so gratifying for me as an artist, you know, and uh, when they get it, there's nothing like it. It's not just students at the university Vereen is hoping to inspire. In May, he's hosting the Southwest Regional High School Musical Theater Awards, known as the Ben Vereen Awards, in Tucson. He says this year the awards are about more than just singing, dancing, and acting. It's called um, the Vereen Wellness Through the Arts, where it's children living with diabetes, kids living with obesity, kids living with low self-esteem or bullying, will write an essay on my best day, the day that I overcame, the day that, and we're gonna take those essays, and they have two pages or a two-minute video, and we're gonna assess them, and the best five, each one of the kids will win $500, and they'll get to come to the Ben Vereen Awards. A recent review wrote that Vereen gives the lasting impression of a man who loves life and wants you to love life. He says he wants the audience to have as much fun as he's having. It really is about the audience. Um, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be here. And I think performers sometimes, not all performers, but most, I've noticed that they forget that. And they think that they have made it themselves. But had the audience not said yes, I wouldn't be here. So I want them to have as much fun as I have. As much fun as Vereen has and wants his audience to have, many of his roles have an underlying message. He recently took to the stage to play Fetch Clay and his persona, Step and Fetch It, a black vaudevillian and silent movie star. Variety wrote, Vereen effortlessly sells the now-reviled representation of the black flunky while slyly asserting the cultured, savvy negotiator beneath. It's a performance of enormous charm and intelligence. I want him to get something, and, and the bottom line is the joy, the joy, the, jo the message in the joy. Uh, how do we get to the joy? You go through the pain and then you come out on the other side. And if we can teach each other how to come out on the other side, I think we'll all be better for the good. Vereen is at the age where he could rest on his laurels. But as his character in Pippin says, Duh, you ain't seen nothing yet, folks. He's still actively practicing his craft. This summer, he's directing a version of Hair, which he starred in on Broadway. 
and he has other projects in the works. One's a, a film uh, written by a Kenyan. It's about this Kenyan who actually is a true story about this 84-year-old man who goes back to the first grade to learn how to read. And the other is sort of a retrospect of my life, uh, of our lives together in the theater and how in the life is how time has played a wonderful part for both of us. Life is just a bowl of cherries. Don't take it serious. Life's too mysterious. I'm Christopher Conover, Arizona Public Media. Ben Vereen talked with Christopher Conover. For good or ill, many of us have had the experience of reuniting with a friend or loved one after years of estrangement. That often difficult situation serves as the core for As Good as Dead, a new literary novel from Elizabeth Evans. Evans is a professor emeritus for the program in creative writing at the University of Arizona, and this is her sixth book of fiction. I started by asking her to compare and contrast her novel's main characters. Charlotte is a small-town Iowa girl who uh, comes from a blue-collar background. Uh, She's very shy, but she's a writer, and so is Esme, and they both are at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Esme is much more sophisticated. She comes from the city, well-to-do, went to college in the East. They have an intense friendship for a time and, uh, you know, sing together, talk about books until all hours of the night. And Charlotte is a little more naive and uh, she tends to maybe tell a little bit too much of the personal details of her own life, but those are some key differences in them. What do you think it is that Charlotte wants or needs from Esme when they first meet and and form their friendship? Or in their early 20s, right? Yeah. Uh, Charlotte is 21 and Esme is 25. Uh, I think Esme seems confident and, uh, you know, she's got this wonderful look of being very sure of herself in the world and Charlotte is quite shy and here's this person who's just open arms oh come be my roommate the first we've met a half an hour ago be my roommate so it's extremely attractive to her and uh, she feels like this is somebody I can share my life with but things don't exactly work out that way and as I read online one reader supposed that the title of your book as good as dead really that phrase refers to the state of their friendship when they re-encounter each other 20 years later in Tucson. How is it that these two characters come back in each other's lives, and what is the temperature of that relationship at that point? Well, when Esme shows up at Charlotte's house 20 years later, Charlotte is thrilled to see her old friend, but she's betrayed Esme in the past, and so she's scared, too. She thinks, well, is this going to be a time when I can fix what I did wrong 
and it, and she's charmed again by Esme. You know, Esme. It looks very different now. Charlotte's had some success in a way that Esme hasn't. She thinks, oh, maybe I can rekindle this friendship, and she's very excited in a way. But but Esme knows some things about Charlotte, and that is a little scary. Well, what about your decision to make Charlotte the narrator? Because in a lot of ways, that gives her kind of a home field advantage over Esme as a character. We're so much more privy to what's going on in her mind. Yeah. One of the things I love about fiction is that we are privy to characters, inner thoughts, in a way that in our real lives, you know, we we very rarely get to know each other in the way that we get to know characters. And uh, Charlotte, she has her, her failings, um, but I didn't ever try to make her an unreliable narrator. Um, she has the same failings in telling things that, that we all might have, even when we're trying to be honest. From the very start of the story, she says, I betrayed my friend. This was, you know, a terrible thing. So I think that by setting her up in that way, I make her someone who I think the reader can follow with some sense that, you know, well, I'm I'm not going to be led astray by, by this person. She really wants to look at her life and think about what she's done. Did you have any special approach or technique you used when you were writing for the two different time frames that the story occurs in? I think stylistically, because it's all being told through um, Charlotte's voice in the present, I think the voice is, is very similar throughout. There is one section of the story that is a story that Charlotte wrote when she was younger. So it has a little bit of a different feel to it. It's a story she tried to write about that friendship. You know, she tried to understand it many years ago, and she couldn't finish that story, and she never published it. And and there's a moment she's, she's looking at that story, and she sees that instead of using the characters' names, at one point she actually had called one of the characters Esme, uh, and she thought, oh my gosh, what if I had published that story? And, you know, <laughs> there was a giveaway there. How did you balance the need to make this as authentic as you could make it about writers without it being too much inside baseball, (laughs) if you know what I mean? Well, one thing that I I think I've gotten good at is reading my work as if I didn't write it. Um, And I read my work aloud uh, over and over again so I can hear what it sounds like. No matter how many times you read it, you will hear different things. And and I like to read to other people, too, because sometimes I'll hear a little something extra when I am reading to someone. Um, I think I am able to catch, you know, if I become um, too esoteric or whatever. Um, I actually teach fiction writing, and um, so I'm used to talking about writing, sometimes to very uh, new writers. And so, you know, I know how to make things, I think, accessible for people who aren't writers. You'll be appearing this weekend at the Festival of Books. We talked earlier about a panel that you'll be on on Saturday, which discusses the use of Tucson as a backdrop for fiction writing. What do you personally get out of doing an event like that? Do you enjoy meeting your readers? Oh, yeah. It's great. It's great. Um, 
and I, I've already met some people who have read the book, so that's very gratifying. And um, yeah, it's just it's a lot of fun, and a lot of people come to the festival who um, are interested in writing, and so I think that our panel will uh, be of, of special interest to those people. We'll talk about Tucson as a setting, but also about the creation of setting. And there are a couple spots in in this book where I talk about the importance of creating a very solid setting um, because you need to create a world in which things can happen that are of consequence. You know, if if there's not... uh, if there's not a glass of water sitting on a table and there's not real water in the glass and it can't tip over, then big things can't happen. And now Elizabeth Evans reads from her novel, As Good As Dead. We join Charlotte, the narrator, at home, just moments before the arrival of a surprise visitor who brings 20 years of regret and reflection to her doorstep. The fateful morning, no exaggeration fateful, that my long-lost friend, Esme Cole, showed up on our front steps. I was sitting at the desk in the room that I used for a home office. The sky in the window over my desk was a clear blue that morning. The temperature outside would climb into the high 80s as the day progressed, but the room faced north, and its exterior wall still held the cold that settled in on desert nights. This was October in Tucson, Arizona which meant that the ancient space heater at the level of my feet pinged away, giving off a metallic odor that might have been unpleasant to somebody else. I connected it with my writing and comfort, and so I liked it. Esme Cole Fletcher, I should call my long-lost friend, Esme, betrayed by me 20 years before, did take the name of the man she married, Once upon a time, she and I had vowed to keep our own names forever, but this is a tale about nothing, if not about changes of heart. When Esme rang Will's and my front doorbell that morning, an obnoxious thing, door drill was more like it, I jumped in my chair, swore. Still, I got up. A stout, red-faced woman stood on our front steps, boxy olive pantsuit, cropped hair the color of Vaseline. Partly turned away, she was just a profile with a single eye squinting against the Arizona sunshine. Impossible for me to have guessed that this was Esme, who had been a student with me in 1988, my roommate in a brick apartment house on Burlington. That Esme had been stylish and slim in capris, vintage cashmere cardigans, a lovely 25-year-old with a bushel basket of red hair pinned up in a cloud of glorious dishevelment. Brave, I'd thought, wearing your hair that way, like keeping a swan for a pet and walking the thing around town, an announcement that you knew you were fabulous. The bulky Esme on the front steps looked so different from the Esme I remembered that even after I opened the inner door and she said her name through the screen, I needed her teasing, Charlotte, c'est moi, before a current began to flow between us. Weak at first. Then that dull, chunky lady began to acquire a soft glow, and it was Esme, and joy is what I felt, alongside a dread that must have made my face go white. 
Yes, in the fall of 88, there had been lovely times between us, such as a morning when we knelt on our apartment's kitchen floor and dent by dent, using the nails of our little fingers, pressed our names into the cupboard's many coats of built-up yellowed enamel. Even better, once we finished, Esme had added a plus sign between our names, Esme plus Charlotte, as if we were sweethearts. Also true, that same fall, I once spent an idiotic blotto night sloshing around on the chilly waterbed of Esme's workshop boyfriend, Jeremy Fletcher. The worst thing I ever did, betraying not only my friend, but also Will, off in Italy at the time. A thoroughly ridiculous person. That was what I had been. Elizabeth Evans read from her novel, As Good as Dead, with sound design by Mitchell Riley. Evans will be appearing at the Tucson Festival of Books on Saturday as part of a panel discussion about using Tucson as a literary backdrop. We have a schedule and many more interviews with authors in attendance at azpm.org. This Saturday's date is a special combination of numbers and millions of people around the world are celebrating it by stuffing their faces with pie. Emily Huddleston reveals what Pie Day is all about. Every year on March 14th, math lovers rejoice in pie. It is a mathematical constant, approximately 3.14. So that is why the date, or 314, is National Pie Day. Pie spelled P-I is a Greek letter. And if it has been a while since you were in a math class learning about pie, Here's Bruce Bailey, a math professor at the University of Arizona. It's not like a straight line. It's like if you've got a circle and you want to tell how long it takes to walk around the outside of the circle. Pi cannot be written as a single fraction and continues as decimals into infinity without repeating or having a pattern. It has been calculated to more than one trillion digits. This year's Pi Day is the celebration of the century. It's Pi Perfection. On March 14, 2015, at 9.26 and 53 seconds, the first 10 numbers of pi will be in perfect order. 3.14159265 Bruce Bailey says he has always celebrated Pi Day. When I was a kid and when I was growing up, we would, uh, we would sometimes have a party with some other math people. We'd make pies and, you know, maybe measure them across the middle and around the sides just to check that we were, in fact, still pretty close to 3.14. If all of this isn't enough, Pi Day is also Albert Einstein's birthday. Is this a coincidence? For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Emily Huddleston. Thank you for listening. You can now find podcasts of Arizona Spotlight on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. Production assistance by Caitlin Dean. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.